All righty. So, as Ben's intern slash henchman, uh, I get the opportunity to introduce our topic for today uh, before the seniors take their turns coming up and sharing their messages that they've prepared to talk with you about. So, uh, life in the sweet spot. Uh, how do I sum up these past four weeks that we've been talking about it? I went on, I was watching a couple of the sermons on our website, and I'm just like, I don't know how to summarize this. So we're going to keep it really simple, and hopefully you've seen them all. If not, watch one or two that you've missed. Uh, life in the sweet spot entails a life that we kind of naturally find ourselves drawn to. Is just kind of, there's a dull moment in our lives. Uh, some sucky things happen, we get carried down that road, and then... Um, we're challenged. We're challenged to pursue God in areas of our life, being our heart, soul, mind, and strength have been the past four weeks' topics. Uh, a, a state of rejoicing, if you engage in these. A deliverance, if you will. Um, so as we move on into our next week, I guess, uh, Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? The past couple weeks have been spent in his initial part of that reply. Uh, the greatest of these is to love your Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, all that stuff. Um, however, his reply does not end there. It goes on to uh, mention the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's this week's focus, uh, is to love your neighbor as yourself. So our central statement that all of these seniors will be talking about, not all, but the seniors who have talked or will talk, is I thrive when I am not the center of the universe. Yeah, right? <laughs> I thrive when I am not the center of the universe. So our passage today is in Leviticus 19, 9 through 18. Leviticus 19, 9 through 18. So if you want to flip there, take your time. I'm going to pray. And we're going to start off with Avery Helms. Woo! All right. Lord, thank you for this morning. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to listen to our youth, to listen to these seniors' hearts about this topic. I just pray that all their work would pay off and they would just have a clarity and calmness uh, in their presentation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Avery Helms, everybody. Avery Helms. Thank you. Thank you, Kane. So my name's Avery. I'm, I want to apologize to everyone. I have kind of lost my voice, so bear with me. Um, I have grown up in this church my whole life. I just uh, I brought this up today because this is the Bible I received when I graduated fifth grade. So that that was really cool seeing all that today. Uh, I will be covering the first two uh, verses in this uh, passage, verses uh, 9 and 10. And so let's read those. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time to pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. 
So looking at the passage, literally at least, um, these, uh, these are instructions to the Israelites uh, about harvest time. Um, well, today we may harvest with uh, the industrial tractor, uh, the favorite method in 1400 BCE uh, to, met, to harvest wheat was the sickle. It's a curved blade, that is. Um, it was very easy to miss a few stalks of wheat when you were harvesting. Uh, and in addition, uh, when the seeds were planted, they weren't planted again with a tractor in nice, straight, even rows. They were scattered by someone with a bag, and so the fields had very rough edges, um, rather than the clear-cut rows we might find in a modern uh, farm. And so the the passage is calling the Israelites there to leave the. Uh, gleanings, that is, the leftover wheat, along with the edges of their field for the poor and for the wayfarer or the foreign traveler in their land. In the same way, they weren't to go over their uh, vineyards a second time or pick up the fallen grapes, again, uh, to leave the, the grapes for the poor. Uh, this served as the, uh, the community as a makeshift welfare system. Um, the gleanings of wheat and the grapes were food for those who needed it. They were free to go out into the fields and vineyards after harvest and gather whatever they needed. God didn't want Israel to become selfish and greedy, scraping the land bare for their own gain and turn their backs on the poor and needy. Now, I don't own a wheat field. Uh, even if I did, I doubt anyone would go out and gather the gleanings even if I left them there. Uh, but in my own experience, uh, I have taken this message of selfish, selflessness and generosity and used it as a motivation to volunteer my time. In the modern world, time is precious. Advertisers pay enormous amounts of money just so you guys can see the same ad over and over and over again. Um, what better, more valuable offering of charity can you offer than your time? I make an effort to leave a gleaning of my time, the edges of my calendar, if you will, to dedicate to volunteer work. I don't want to become selfish, taking all this time the Lord has blessed me with and using it to pursue my own desires. I have been able to find purpose and fulfillment working with the children's ministry here at MCC and with a charity organization called Operation Christmas Child. But if I'm being honest, I, I could be doing more. I can just imagine how much good could be done if I was working in San Francisco with City Impact instead of watching anime at home for multiple hours each week. I've started praying that God would give me a more charitable heart and that I would be motivated to spend my time making the world a better place instead of just doing stuff for my own enjoyment. I think it would be really cool if you all would be willing to work towards this with me. Um, I know for me personally, I need to be giving more of my time to God, but it could be an emotional, financial, or relational generosity that you know God is asking you for. As Christians, we want to leave lives glorifying to God, Right now, the way I'm going to do that is by putting some of my selfish ways aside and giving my time to him generously. In that way, he can use me to help those in need, if that is his will.
if only a fraction of everyone here were to put their natural, this natural selfish part of themselves aside and, uh, but, and live into the area of generosity that you feel called to, the Lord will bless our efforts. Before I hand off the mic to Kayla, I would like to end in a short prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for all that you have blessed us with. You are a generous and loving God. I pray that you will work with us as we are trying to put away our selfish ways so that we may honor you with our time, money, and relationships. Amen. And welcome to the stage, Kayla. My name is Kayla Rose, and for those of you who know me or know my family, um, know the importance that sports have in my life, so you won't be surprised if I draw uh, some sports analogies here. Um, so during Game 7 of the Basketball NBA Western Conference Finals, um, it's the Warriors, uh, game is on tonight, uh, Steph Curry had an intense exchange with Westbrook, a competitor, and if you watch the series, you know they had a little beef through all of it, um, that just escalated into game seven. Um, uh, later, a commentator was reviewing that exchange and said something that really struck me as having a lot of truth. He said, you know what Steph's saying? He's saying you don't have to like me, but you have to respect me. And that got me thinking. I've played softball since kindergarten. I think back on the thousands of at-bats I've taken and players I've competed with, and I realize that an athlete isn't someone, an athlete I respect isn't always someone I have to like. And that sounds awful, I know, but how does an athlete command respect? It isn't just a question of the numbers or the performance on the field. A player that is respected is a player who plays a clean game and a fair game. It's a respected athlete, especially in a team sport like basketball or softball, understands that a single player just can't do it all. Ask Russell Westbrook, if you want to be in the center of the universe in the sporting world, pick an individual sport. That kind of mindset will just absolutely not work in a team environment. People like Steph have an air of honest humility about them, an honest integrity. Sports and faith have always intertwined in my life, and both have taught me the most important lesson I think one can learn, how to behave every single day. We have a rule on my travel team. Well, it's really more of an understanding that if you go anywhere with the team name Easton on it, there's a certain decorum that's expected. Wearing that name means that I'm representing the team and my actions are then reflected onto the team. It's especially important when we're trying to get girls recruited for college. If we're at a tournament and some girls are goofing off in the lobby, being disrespectful or too loud or whatnot, while wearing Easton sweatshirts and a college coach witnesses it, you can be sure the coach will take down the team name and be sure to pass over the team on the field. And you may never know. Your pitcher may have been talking to that coach, and now that opportunity is off the table for her because she doesn't want that type of player on her team. So the name on the front is more important than the name on the back, and we treat that team name with respect. The code of conduct is essentially the requirement to behave with integrity. And that's a concept that readily translates into life and to faith. So the concept of integrity is twofold. It's a firm adherence to a code of moral values, resulting in a state of being complete, undivided, and of unimpaired condition. We as Christians have submitted to the moral code and values of the Bible. Just think back to the Ten Commandments. Those are the rules we are to live by. 
And if we do, it yields to the second part of the definition, a state of being that is complete and undivided, meaning being whole. A person of complete biblical character is one loving, loyal, and honest in their actions. In fact, honesty is a synonym for integrity. So let's look back at Leviticus and focus on verses 11 and 12. Do not steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another. Do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. These two verses quite literally mean do not steal, do not cheat, deceive, or swear falsely by God's name. <laughs> They're the ground rules that, if practiced, help transform our lives from self-centered to others-centered. It is with this kind of integrity that we can seek to fully serve and follow God. So the book of Leviticus is basically a playbook. And unfortunately for those on the outside looking in, it just doesn't make being a Christian look all that appealing. Too many rules. But Jesus addresses this in Matthew 22, 35 to 40. One of them, a Pharisee, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Christianity is about the rules, but it's not just about the rules. We love God when we love our neighbors, who are our teammates in life. The rule, rules in Leviticus teach integrity, giving us the ability to love our neighbors and in turn, love God. There are so many incredible examples of people who walk with integrity at MCC. And that's really a remarkable thing. I don't know if y'all know this, but every day that you make the decision to walk with integrity, we notice the high schoolers, the middle schoolers, all the way down. We notice and we take note. You set a great example. A couple of weeks ago at House, um, we talked about legacy with the overarching question, how do you want to be remembered? The answers were pretty much unanimous. We wanted to be remembered as real people who are authentic in our actions. Every single week, I walked into a youth group that was just that. Leaders received us with an abundance of love, and all of the students were genuinely excited to see each other. You have helped us foster authentic relationships, which is just friendship with integrity added. When we live with integrity, God's power can flow through us, through us and his glory can shine. He becomes the center of our universe. What is, what is it actually that draws the non-believer to church? It certainly isn't the rules. It's witnessing lives changed. It's noticing that there's something different about those people who spend their weeks serving at City Impact or volunteering to run the yard sale at Hamilton or volunteering their Wednesday nights to lead a whole bunch of teenagers through small groups. So in conclusion, yes, those verses quite literally are rules to follow, but why? The why is because when we live a lifestyle drenched with integrity, we fulfill our main job. We have decided to be good sports. We love the Lord with all our heart, body, soul, and mind, and we love our neighbor, and that is where we thrive. So with that, I'd like to bring up Shannon. I'm Shannon. Uh, I've been at Marine Covenant for a year now, and it's been a great experience. So I got Leviticus 19, 13 through 14, and it says, Do not defraud your neighbor or rob him. Do not hold back the wages of a hired man overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God, I am the Lord. 
So we already know to love our neighbors as ourselves, but here God is telling us that part of loving our neighbor as ourselves includes not stealing from them. However, just because we don't steal from someone does not mean we have done them no wrong. He also tells us that we can't pick on the weak, and this passage specifically mentions deafness and blindness, but it covers anyone who we consider weaker than ourselves. In a godless culture, it is acceptable to pick on the weak or it's understandable to take advantage of them, but as God's people, we're made to be set apart or holy, and so it's our job to be compassionate and empathetic. There, were so, there are so many ways to hurt people or cause them to stumble, and it's so easy to turn a blind eye and ignore someone in need, but God has put the strength in us to dig deeper and to actually help. As God's people, we have to find ways to not only avoid making people fall, but to lift them up. In my own life, I have attempted to follow these teachings. A specific time that sticks out for me is when I went to City Impact to end the Tenderloin with the church. On that trip, we got to prepare and deliver meals to people in need. Most of the people we delivered meals to were sort of shunned by society, and we got to reach out to them. It felt good to give back rather than to take, and I feel like it's very important to have these experiences, especially as someone who's been so fortunate. I plan to continue practicing these teachings next year, and one, or, well, always, I guess. Um, and one way I plan on doing this is by helping in student ministry next year. I look forward to helping the students through this awkward middle ground and to help them experience love and belonging. So as a church, how can we have eyes to help those who are hurting? Also, I'm very thankful for the church for all these wonderful experiences and opportunities. And so with that, uh, I'll invite Paul Adkison to talk. Hey everyone, uh, my name is Paul Atkinson. Like Shannon said, uh, I'm a senior at Novato High School. I'm going to be attending UCLA next fall to study neuroscience. Uh, and I've been at MCC since I was around three or four, so I've really grown up in the church. Uh, I was baptized around seven. Um, and I, first off, I'd just like to thank each and every one of you for loving and caring for me as I've grown up and come into my own. It means so much to me. I can't really even express it in words to provide this sanctuary for me to always have a place to go when I'm feeling down or feeling happy and just have a good time. Uh, so with that, I'd like to dive right into the word. You can see it up on the screen. Uh, my passage is Leviticus 19:15 through 16. And it goes, Do not twist justice in legal matters by favoring the poor or being partial to the rich and powerful. Always judge people fairly. Do not spread slanderous gossip among your people. Do not stand idly by when your neighbor's life is threatened. I am the Lord. Now, I'm not going to lie. I was uh, just a little bit disappointed when I got my assignment of Leviticus. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it's just a chapter that's a list of don'ts, uh, which to me is the least exciting part of the Bible. But after each don't is a very important phrase, I am the Lord, or I am that I am. You see, God is taking each of these rules and linking it to our relationship with him. He's saying, don't break these rules because I love you and you love me. Don't gossip or slander or twist justice because it hurts our relationship with him. And that is what makes these rules so meaningful. You see, this passage is talking about right and wrong, especially the bit about justice. It really 
has an impact on the law in general and the very idea of following what God says because it is right and not doing these things because they're wrong. Because everyone has a concept of right and wrong. It's just innately imbued in each and every one of us. From the beginning of written history, right and wrong has been essential to our lives. The, one of the very first documents ever created, Hammurabi's Code, was a legal document. Written in 1754 BC, it was all about right and wrong. Greek philosophers, the founders of Western society, focus almost entirely on ethics, on right and wrong. And every other world religion also focuses on right and wrong, telling you what to do and what not to do. You see, so God has clearly imbued every one of us with a sense of good and evil, and we all feel the desire to do right. But what makes the law, what makes Leviticus so special is it informs us what right and wrong is. It tells us right from wrong. Now, many people have a misconception that simply because we eat meat and we don't sacrifice animals, that the Old Testament can be basically thrown out the window. But this is simply just not true. Even though specific limited parts of the Old Testament have been a doctrine, have been overwritten, the vast majority of it remains just as relevant today as it was thousands of years ago. In fact, Jesus said himself in Matthew 5, 17, in his Sermon on the Mount, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. See, according to Jesus, the entirety of the law is still relevant and binding, even in 2016. But although we want to do good, and with the Bible, we have the knowledge of how to do it, there is still sin in, in us, and it causes us to do what we do not want to do, to do evil. And now, to tell a story, to make this point a little stronger, in freshman year, I had uh, somewhat of a bad experience at a, at a school dance, and I sinned. I, uh, after the dance, I gossiped about a girl. I said some terrible things, and of course, the rumors spread, and it came back to bite me. Um, she found out and was really hurt, and she confronted me about it. I was so ashamed, I felt the guilt immediately, and I apologized forthright, but it didn't really rectify the situation completely. Even today, I find it hard to look into her eyes because of the guilt of what I'd done to her. But if only I had paid attention to this very passage in Leviticus, do not gossip, do not slander, I could have avoided so much pain. So you see, God's law, it may seem annoying, like a bunch of rules that we have to follow. And it may seem fun to break at the time, but it really protects us and fosters a better, stronger relationship with him and with other people. So today, I challenge all of you, and especially my fellow seniors, to live according to this book, 
and follow every passage in this holy Bible. But do not do it in a condescending or self-righteous way because if we flaunt our goodness, it's, the, it's even worse than breaking the law in the first place. Instead, we must adhere to the law in kindness and love according to the second greatest commandment. And then we will live our lives in the sweet spot. So with that, I'd like to welcome up my friend Ethan Tate. Hi, folks. I'm Ethan Tate. Hi, Jeff. I have been here for a long time. Uh, I, uh, not as long as Avery. Avery's a tenured veteran. Um, I have been here since second grade. Um, so that puts me at clocking in somewhere around 10 or 11 years. Uh, it's been my origin to go to this church for quite some time. Um, I've had the pleasure of growing in my faith with this congregation. It's been something that I can rely on and I, people I can love and, uh, and learn from. Uh, I, uh, I could not have grown in a better family in Christ, so I'd like to thank you for that for these last 10 years. My verse today is Leviticus uh, 19, 17 through 18 which it should be up here or behind me somewhere. Yeah. All right. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So my passage in this verse is about ridding yourself of hatred. Holding a grudge is like any other habit, slowly picked up over time, one by one, until one becomes a sour and disgruntled person. This is the classic love your neighbor passage we've all heard a thousand times since we were in Sunday school. But if we really get into these short couple of lines, there's a lot of substance here. This is a tough one to put into practice. When somebody pushes your buttons or hurts your feelings, the human emotion is anger or sadness. These are reasons for one to harbor hate or a grudge, and we all have it. We have to confront the fact that people store grudges, and it's the honest truth. At one point or another, we have harbored hatred for others, and we still may even have some hate in our heart today. The analogy I think of in this situation is one drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. Your soul and body are the only things being hurt, and the other person isn't going to be affected at all. It just hurts you more and more over time. The strength comes from within yourself and your faith. The hardest thing in this situation is to be the bigger person and to forgive. Even when wronged, the right thing to do is love and turn the other cheek, like it says in Matthew 5.39. To quote a little green hero of mine, fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, and hate leads to suffering. I try to live my life with the kind of values and integrity that I have learned to follow from my growth and beliefs over the last 18 years of my life. In the passage, it says to love your neighbor as yourself. Learning to be empathetic can be a difficult journey. Loving is a service to others, but also to yourself. Learning to be empathetic can be a difficult journey. Lost my place there, sorry. Hold on one second. Difficult journey. Love is, love is a service to others, but also about yourself. Your heart grows to help others and care about how they feel. The Lord asks that we put everyone on the same level as we treat ourselves. Being this selfless takes time. To some, empathy and service are a second nature. Others need time to perfect it. When I was in middle school, I played lacrosse. I started in sixth grade when I was a chubby and impressionable 12-year-old. I wasn't good at sports in general, and lacrosse was my introduction to field team sports. 
The only other sport I ever really got into and played somewhat consistently was golf, and I wanted the team aspect that I hadn't experienced before. I wanted to branch out from more from my small school of 16 kids. I was the second, gra or, yeah, second graduating class of Good Shepherd Middle School. Uh, we had 16 people in that class for the eighth grade. Um, and meet some people from other schools and make friends. It turned out for a while uh, that it was what I wanted, but in the long run it was the opposite of what I had expected. Uh, middle schoolers are an interesting breed. <laughs> Those are the years that we began adolescence when we began to define who we are. It's common to try new ways to approach people and how to react to others and how to act from those reactions. One of the easiest things is to bully and to make fun and to assert dominance. This was the case with my lacrosse team. The team was not supportive or helpful to me or each other. It was really difficult for me, a kid with low self-esteem, just looking to be part of something enjoyable and experience teamwork on the field. I wanted to be appreciated by my peers, and instead they made fun of me. I hated them for it for three years. I continued to play because I wanted to improve so I could be accepted. Slowly I improved, but it was not enough. I was not until about midway through high school that I realized that these boys had really liked me all along and that the cruelty was a way of an acceptance of itself. Again, middle schoolers are pretty interesting people. Um, I grew to forgive them over time because I worked with them in high school off the field. Um, they were given the opportunity to get to know me for me and not the bad player that I was in seventh grade. So um, they learned to, to care about me for who I am. It took a lot of prayer and a lot of time with God, but I can say that I've forgiven them now and that I've become close friends with a lot of these people. But just like any Christian, there is much for me to learn from our faith. The beauty is that there's always room for growth in Christ, and in this instance, the temptation to lean into anger is seducing, but with God, we can be pulled from this strong uh, lust in the face of hatred. Um, one of these quotes that I pulled right here kind of reminds me of, uh, of this passage. And uh, for me, it was the classic Jungle Book, um, the book by Rudyard Kipling. Then there's the movie, and then, of course, the newest movie, for some of you who have seen that one. So the quote is, Now this is the law of the jungle, as old and as true as the sky. And the wolf that shall keep it may prosper but the wolf that shall break it must die. As the creeper that girdles the tree trunk, the law runneth forward and back, for the strength of the pack is the wolf, and the strength of the wolf is the pack. I invite you as the congregation to join me in embracing God in this way. I practice this forgiveness by taking time alone. Pray and speak to God, and write down your frustrations. It can be helpful to speak with close friends or family to vent out your concerns. It is in these suggestions that you can easily release the anger and get through it. Like Yoda said earlier, anger leads to hatred. If you cut off the head of the anger and get through it, it can't spawn into anything more than a grudge that it can never become. Harboring these feelings or what the Lord is saying here is wrong. To love your neighbor is to love anyone, even those who have wronged you. It takes strength and devotion. Christianity falls into saying everyone's mom always told them practice makes perfect, but it can't happen overnight. Begin to work on budding grudges, but also work on residing ones as well. I ask that you begin this practice of letting go of what angers you. The right thing to do is to relieve yourself of the weight and your back will get lighter. It is in this way that God hopes that we both grow to release our hatred, but also become more compassionate to others. I'd like to conclude the seniors talking up here by uh, speaking about the verse, or conclude the, of us speaking uh, with a prayer. So if you wouldn't mind bowing your heads for me. 
Dear Lord, thank you so much for what you've done for the seniors here today. I could not imagine a better community of Christians to grow up in and to learn with. Our youth group has built us to be sturdy men and women of God, and we thank you for the opportunity to go forth and be your children in our lives wherever we find ourselves. We would like to ask that in our travels you keep us safe from harm, strong in faith, and close to our hearts. We will remember our roots and where we came from forever. Keep in our hearts and minds that we are not the center of the universe, and we do not need to be. We must find our sweet spot as we've been taught in the past few weeks' teachings. As we conclude today, I ask that we may take communion where we find ourselves on equal footing with one another and receive grace for Jesus to live more into the people that he has called us to be. In your name we pray. Amen.